Hey, what's up? Welcome back to The Sound Table. I'm your host, Austin, and I'm joined by your co-host, Miranda. Hello. Today is going to be a chill episode. It's just me and Miranda in the studio, no guest, but this is a topic that we get a ton of questions on. Every time I post any kind of like ask me anything or any kind of Facebook question or YouTube comment, I get a lot on how I find like paying clients, paying artists, how I find artists to collaborate with, and then just what that kind of workflow is like once I found them. So how do we get something booked? What's invoicing like? What's scheduling like, et cetera. So in this podcast episode, I wanted to just talk a little bit about kind of how I got started getting paid clients, how I have transitioned that into having paid clients consistently. And then every time that we do kind of start a project, whether that's a collaboration or a paid project, what that workflow is like and what's kind of included in that time frame and within my duties as the producer. So we're going to dive into all of that. It's going to be really chill. So just kick back. There will probably be a lot of good info that you get if you've never been working with paid projects, but let's dive right into it. Let's just go ahead and dive right into this topic. I think, though, that before I talk about my experience getting paid to produce and to write and do things like that, I think it is kind of important to talk about the different lanes that you can take to become a full-time producer. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, like, I've gone the freelancing way, but this is at least until the past few years, has been kind of an uncommon way. So we'll talk a little bit about the more traditional ways. One of those, and I have a lot of friends that this has worked really well for. I have a lot of friends also that have not seen a huge return on this. Is you take the traditional approach of like you go to an audio school, you specialize in audio engineering or audio production or something like that. And then you get your internship outside of that school. You work at that studio as a runner for a couple years and then an assistant mix engineer and then you know, an assistant tracking engineer, and then you kind of work your way up. And I think this is a cool way for like, if you like learning in a classroom setting, mm -hmm. and if you want to take that traditional approach, and if you're okay with being kind of like the silent engineer in sessions where you're still getting these massive projects, however, you're not necessarily putting all of your creative input at first, mm -hmm. you're just kind of around the vibe in the environment. I think this is a really solid option. And this is not the option that I went I still to this day haven't been in studio sessions with like massive producers and engineers. You, well, you also didn't go to school for it either. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I was all self-taught. I didn't kind of take a traditional pro approach at all. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I have friends that are racking up credits for some of the biggest artists in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're like having conversations with these people or and having input creatively. And that's totally fine. That's not a good or a bad thing. Like if you really want to engineer and you just want to be around that that might be a good option for you. The pay is going to be a lot less because typically studios will just kind of pay, pay you a flat rate for being there. So it's like an hourly rate for any time you're there, either, you know, running or engineering or wrapping and fixing cables. It's all kind of just like a, a one-stop fee. So that could be an option if anybody wants to kind of go that route. Another route that I see people take, and this can pay off hugely or it could be a complete waste of time, is taking like the publishing deal route where people normally will have kind of a, a catalog of songs that they've made for themselves or for smaller artists. And then they'll get offered a pub deal where let's say, you know, Sony will come and they'll offer you a three-year deal. And typically they'll give you a signing bonus and that has to last you all three years. And then what they do is they assign you an A&R or a rep or a publisher or something like that to kind of help you get into studio sessions with some of the bigger people as a creative input. They'll send you on writing camps. They'll um, you know, try to link you up with artists who may be looking for things. You'll get one sheets for what people are looking for for upcoming releases. 
And that's a really cool way, but the payoff is not guaranteed. So I know a lot of people who sign a three-year contract, maybe they got a $100,000 signing bonus, which felt like a lot of money to them at the time, but then they had to spread that out over three years and then they never even got Mm -hmm. any cuts or anything like that, so... When you have a publishing deal, are you allowed to also do freelance work or are you like strictly you can only work with who you're signed with? I'm sure it just depends on the contract, but typically with a publisher, you're signed to that publisher. So say like right now I signed to a publisher and Riley came to me independently, like he didn't find me through a publisher. Yeah. Typically my publisher is still going to get a cut. So like when you're working with your publisher, it's normally like a 50-50 cut, right? So if if I signed a song with Drake and I got paid out a million dollars... Publisher would take 500000 I would take 500000 mm. And that's really worth it if you're getting big cuts. But, you know, in the same sense, if you're working with smaller people or if you're having a lot of people come to you directly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If people are coming to you directly, then that's kind of shit. Right. You might as well cut the middleman and not have a publisher. Yeah. Granted, there are other benefits. Like, they can take well, yeah. care of your sound exchange. They can make sure that all your royalties are taken care of. Mm-hmm. It's almost like having a manager for your creative work. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like typically a lot of producers will still have managers to handle like booking, fees, contracts, you know, just stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like tracking down where your songs were used, how they were used, making sure that all those payouts are right, that's typically what a publisher does. Yeah. But like I was saying before, you might get a $100,000 advance and that's supposed to last you three years. And at the end of the three years, you still haven't gotten a cut. So you made Mm $30,000 a year. You know, you could go make that making 15 bucks an hour, doing kind of whatever you needed to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're okay kind of being tied down in a contract and you really believe that given the opportunity, you'll be able to make it work, that could be a good option. Again, I know a lot of people who sign publishing deals and have had, you know, top 10 records. And then I know a lot that have signed publishing deals, ran their time out with that, not had a single, you know, significant cut and then have much more success independently. Yeah, it's all very personal. It is. So that's kind of like the, the second big thing that you could do. And then the third, and this is probably until recently the most unconventional, and it's been my career path accidentally, that's being an independent freelancer. And what that means is that um, you could still have like a manager or something like that, but I'm independent, so I'm not on a publisher. I don't work under a label. I don't work under a studio or a, a house or anything like that. Typically, I'm responsible for finding artists to work with, or they kind of come to me. I'm responsible for handling billing, invoicing, making sure that song splits get taken care of. But that gives me the freedom to work with who I want, when I want to work with them, Mm -hmm. how I want to work with them. I can set my own budgets. And it's a lot more flexible to have, you know, potentially upfront cash because a lot of the time as freelancers, we're doing things called work for hire agreements, not necessarily just taking publishing percentages or points on the master for songs that may or may not even come out. We'll talk about all that in just a little while because I do want to talk about like setting rates and ways to get paid. Mm -hmm. But if you're a freelancer, it's going to be a lot harder to get to that top tier where, you know, say you're under a publisher, they can get you in the room with Dua Lipa or Drake or somebody like that. As an independent producer, it's it's really hard to make those connections. Yeah, Like you've really got to stand out. You have to start kind of working your way up, getting cuts that kind of accidentally blow up. And then people are like, oh, yeah, that he's a fire producer. Who's he under? And then they're like, oh, he's he's independent. He's self-published. Okay, well, I'll still work with him. And I mean, if you can circumnavigate all of that and still get to that, you know, penultimate status, that's where you're really going to see success because you have nobody kind of dipping into your pockets. Mm-hmm. However, it's it's almost unheard of to get to those levels without some kind of publishing agreement. Yeah, or like knowing somebody or like 
being like Drake's producer, they've been together since the beginning. Right. Like even if I was working on, you know, top 10, top 100 records consistently, I'd probably then sign with a publisher just to make sure that they were handling all that because that's a lot to keep up with. Like, Mm -hmm. how am I supposed to know if my sound exchange payment is correct or not? You know, it's like, yeah, you you leave a little bit off the top to make sure that everything gets handled. Otherwise you could end up with nothing because you don't know what you're doing in that kind of situation. Yeah. But I feel like 50% is a little dramatic. I feel like it's like more, maybe 30. Yeah. I mean, those are typically like the three ways that I see people start to earn income or, you know, become quote unquote full time as a producer or a songwriter or a mixing engineer or anything like that. So I just wanted to dive into that before I talk about my experience, because my experience is just a super personal thing. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that have taken a similar route and not had the success that I've been fortunate to have. I know a lot of people who have taken a totally different route and have completely just blown past me and are working on crazy records. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. It just do whatever feels comfortable for you and however you like to work. But I guess we should probably dive into how I, I started even getting paid for this. What, uh, what year were we freshmen in college? 2013, 2014? 2013 and 2014, yeah. Okay, so when we were freshmen in college, I had, if, if you haven't listened to our intro episode where I talk about my journey and Miranda talks about her journey and all of that, listen to that because this timeline may make a lot more sense. But putting just some dates on things, I had been producing for maybe like a year, year and a half kind of on the side, just making demos for my band by the time I went off to college. But when Miranda and I went to college, I was still just doing music for fun on the side. So I wasn't in a band anymore. I was making a lot of demos. And at this time, I was still doing a lot of rock and metal. And I think I was just working on so many tracks and I would always send the tracks to my friends who were doing that kind of music. At the time, there were a couple kind of metal oriented Facebook groups. There was one called Chango. There was one called the Joey Sturgis group. And those groups were pretty notorious for people like sharing their work and getting feedback and meeting each other and all of that kind of stuff. So throughout freshman year of college, I was just constantly making my own demos. You know, I'd track my own guitar, program my own drums, make as many kind of full ideas as possible. And I'd always try to post what I could and get feedback and actually listen to the feedback. And doing that, I just made a bunch of friends in there. I made a bunch of I guess you could call them connections later down the line. And I was starting to impress people back in the town that I had left from high school, which was Pensacola. And in Pensacola, we didn't really have a lot of producers or engineers or people like that that were super capable of doing that genre at the time. What happened was a couple of the bands that I had known back then were hearing some of the things that I I was just working on for fun. And they offered to just pay me to help out. Like there was one that I remembered called uh, Captain My Captain. That was my friends, Zach and Luke and I think Drew. And I can't remember if Nathan was in that band, but it was a lot of people that I had known from our hometown and they were just working on demos and they were sounding okay, but they were looking for somebody to come in and finish up production and kind of do a mix. And at this time, I didn't even have a home studio. I was on a laptop with headphones Mm -hmm. working on Mixcraft But they liked my demos and they were okay with, you know, sending me, I can't even remember, maybe $100, maybe $200 max. I forgot about that. Yeah. And that was probably the first time I ever actually got paid. And so that was freshman year of college. And I kind of did that for the next year or two where bands would either find me from them or just from stuff that I was posting on those online groups and forums. And they were kind of impressed with. And that's kind of like the first big tip is... If you're trying to get artists to notice you or to want to collaborate with you or hire you or anything like that, you have to be putting your work out there and not in a sense of like you're promoting yourself in a sense of like 
you're proud of what you've done, but you would love to get other people's feedback and learn. Because I think that's one of the big things is like, nobody likes somebody who's just promoting their shit all the time. That gets annoying. Yeah, you got to be vulnerable, guys. Right, (laughs) right. And so in doing that, I just, I got a lot of people in my inbox over, you know, the next year just being like, oh, can I give you a hundred bucks for this? A couple hundred bucks for this? And at that time, it was so run and gun. Like I didn't have contracts. I wasn't doing consultation calls. I wasn't like being booked. I was still working at a bookstore, newly married, in college, full-time, I would just take whatever I could for, you know, a couple hundred extra bucks when I could. And I did that for a little while. And then in that time, that's when I had like started the the Make Pop Music Facebook group. And I was starting to to flirt around with the idea of doing like tutorials and, and sample packs and stuff like that. As I was transitioning into pop, because I had made that group, I was doing something really similar in there where I would just post every pop demo that I could that I would make or any song that I'd work on for myself or my friend Grayson, who I was like working with a lot of the time, almost like developing him as an artist so I'd have something to work with. And I was just constantly posting stuff. Mm -hmm. And that again, in turn, got people in my inbox. People were like, oh, this is great. Can you, you know, edit vocals for me on this track? Can you mix this track? Can you add this kind of production to this track? Can you do a full production for me? At this time, I was still just doing freelance work on the side. But it got to the point where I, you know, we talk about it in kind of like the first podcast episode where I made the decision under Miranda's advice to kind of go full time. And when I did that, I would say that I was I was pretty comfortable in the fact that like I had some work under my belt. I had paid projects under my belt. I had non-paid collaborations that I was proud of under my belt. And I had work that I felt like really could speak for itself. And at this point, I had already had a couple years of experience getting paid for a project and knowing kind of how to handle that. Mm-hmm. Granted, not in the same scope as like, okay, I was doing one paid project a month and now I'm doing five a week. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of the same thing, especially once you go full-time, you have a lot more time to dedicate to splitting between artists and between projects. And so that was kind of my intro to getting paid is I never really set out to want to do this as a career. I never really set out to have like all of these big goals or milestones or anything set it was more so just like I was making a lot of music people liked it people wanted my input or wanted my you know quote-unquote expertise on that and so they offered to pay me uh at this time I wasn't doing a ton of free work like I am kind of a proponent of like you need to do a lot of work to get experience under your belt and to kind of have a portfolio and most of that is free but make it at least make sense so like the free work that I was doing was I was producing stuff for myself as an artist. I was working with my friend Grayson as an artist. I would have artists where they might hire me for one mix, but I was so impressed with them. I just wanted them to be in my catalog. So I'd give them really good deals for, you know, a whole EP. Like I did that with, with our friend Coda Milo. Mm -hmm. And it's things like that of like, it's okay to work for free, but make sure that you're getting paid somehow. And I was getting paid in the sense of like, now I have really good examples of my work with artists that are solid, you know? It's really hard to find a couple artists that you can kind of build your own skills with because one thing that I see happen with a lot of producers, especially as they're starting to get paid, is that they will work with anybody who will pay them, but then it's so hard to develop a good catalog because your barrier of entry is so low, anybody can give somebody $100 to make a song. And that song is probably going to come out not so great, in which case then it's hard to show that off and get other people to trust in you. So if you're going to work for free, I advise just making stuff on your own that you want to do. And then I advise finding a couple different artists and they should be pretty new and, you know, pretty 
early on in their process as well. Yeah, someone you, that you can like grow with. Right, learn and grow with. Like yeah. even earlier, we talked about Drake, you know, like Drake and 40 or The mm-hmm. Weeknd and Elangelo or any of those kind of artists where like their first bodies of work are with the same production, if, if not team, at least like the same main head producer that they're still working with now. Like 40 was not getting major, major, major cuts before Drake. Elangelo was not like absolutely dominating pop and, and R&B and EDM charts. It's just, that's so important to kind of get those early acts that you can learn and grow with. And granted, a lot of mine have either phased out of music or have just like moved on to different things or I've moved on to different things. But like, I don't think I'd be where I was if I didn't have at least a handful of good artists and collaborators within my first year of doing freelance on the side and then a year of doing freelance full time. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think it was, it was just so important to get projects that I believed in under my belt. So that would be like my, my big tip is as you're, you're getting started and you want to start getting paid, build a portfolio that you believe in. And it's okay if not everything in that is paid, Mm -hmm. as long as it's good enough that will convince an artist later down the line to pay you. Yeah. Especially because if you're doing free work, like the last thing you want to do is be doing work that you are not create, like you're not passionate about it. You don't, you're not inspired by it. Like if you're going to do shit for free, you want it to be something that makes you feel something. It makes you feel good so that you have the motivation to actually do it because you don't have money to motivate you. So you got to have something. 100%. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a big proponent of there's got to be some reward for your effort. Sometimes yeah. it's money. Sometimes it's back end. Like we'll talk about points and, and royalty splits and stuff like that later. Sometimes it is sheerly just to have an artist in your catalog. Like there are a lot of artists that I would just love to have in my works with section of my site or of my portfolio. I wouldn't charge them a thing. I wouldn't care if I never made a single dime in a split just because the opportunity to work with them and, you know, have them in my circle would be so much greater than a couple thousand dollars mm-hmm. or, you know, a couple points on a song where we could do a whole catalog later down the road. So I think just trying to stay like as humble as possible and realizing there are different approaches to different circumstances where, you know, I don't feel bad about charging an artist a couple thousand dollars if that's what their project needs. And then I also don't feel bad about finding an artist that has a lot to offer me in another area and not necessarily charging them that. We'll talk about that when we get to pricing again later. But that's kind of just been my whole experience with getting into the paid market. And then once I got in, kind of keeping that cycle going of like, I find one person, I do a good job. Then I find three people, I do a good job. Then I find 10 people, I do a good job. And all of this is while I'm still putting out as much music or content or whatever you want to call it as possible. Uh, Because you really do have to cast that wide net. Like right now, between Make Pop Music and just myself as a producer, I've probably worked on a thousand records that have released. Make Pop Music has 165,000 subs on YouTube and 30,000 people in a Facebook group. We have like a f- several hundred thousand views every month. And that's people constantly seeing my productions, right? Mm-hmm. Like seeing what I do as a songwriter, what I do as a producer, what I do as a mixer. So at any given time, I might have 60 to 80 inquiries on my website within a month, you know? And that's people that are willing to pay me and that's pay me good money. So, you know, this is not like a flex or anything. This is just to point out that there are a lot of people still willing to fork up cash for a production they believe is worth it i see a lot of people complaining like oh there's just nobody just wants to pay for anything everybody just wants to collab bro and it's like yeah that might be true but i don't know it's like at the same time when i'm getting 
so at some months, $100,000 worth of inquiries in an inbox, and I'm taking three of them. Well, it's like, okay, well, then the other 77 people have to find somebody to work with, right? Yeah, I think that depends. I think some people want to work with specific people, though. Yeah. So I don't know if that's necessarily a fair statement. Well, that, I mean, that's something that we'll dive into later. But my point is, is that there are people actively looking for somebody to work with. And they yeah, might think but... that they want to work with me because they've seen me produce on YouTube or they've seen me produce on Instagram or they've heard something that I've done for another artist. But that's kind of my point of like getting yourself out there, right? Like yeah. you could start taking away from those 80 people that might hit me up within a single month because you're starting to, you know, I don't know if you, you want to make your content on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram reels or Facebook groups or word of mouth. But however you want to do it, I can promise you that there is a pretty solid market of artists out there looking for, if not long-term collaborators, somebody that they can pay immediately to get some work done. So yeah. I just don't want people to be discouraged and think like, oh, I'm going to put all this time into making a YouTube video or, mm -hmm. or putting out a song as an artist and nobody's even going to care. I saw a YouTube video literally yesterday that had 600 views of somebody doing some kind of production tutorial, 600 views. There were three comments of people being like, can I work with you? Like yeah. what, how, what website do I go to to hire you? Well, I think that's because it's getting production done is so expensive. Yes. Like it's not something cheap and it's risky. Like it's risky paying somebody something that you don't know if they're going to come through for you on that project. So it's like, if they can see examples of what you can do, they're like, oh, okay, cool. This person actually knows what the fuck they're doing. I can trust them and I can give them my money and I know that I will you know, get something good in return. That's so funny that you say that because that's literally the next thing on my show notes. Wow. Miranda's not sitting here with the show notes right now. <laughs> I am. I literally made them this morning. Well, I'm not then, talking a lot in this one. So I figured what's the point? Well, it's just funny that you naturally transition into that because my literal next point was that not only does, you know, making some kind of content or putting your work out there as, a, as an artist or producer show people what you can do and kind of like get people's attention on you. Mm -hmm. But just building that rapport with people of like, let's say that I want to charge somebody $2,500 to produce their song. That's really scary for a lot of people to- yeah, that's a lot of money. That's most people's complete monthly expenses. Yeah. To spend on hiring a producer, especially one that they've never met in person. They'll probably never meet in person. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people that unfortunately get ripped off yeah. by hiring producers or mixing engineers or people being flaky. Or I see a lot of the time where somebody's portfolio absolutely just fucking bangs. And then everybody that works for them is always disappointed because they've picked out the three best things they've ever done. And, you know, they advertise that as kind of their baseline benchmark where those were just outliers. Those were exceptionally good and everything they have is one level down. Yeah. And when you do something like make YouTube tutorials or make Instagram reels or make a TikTok or post or on a group, post on a group yeah. advice or something like that, you kind of tear that wall of mystique down and you kind of build rapport with potential collaborators and, and clients in the sense of like, if somebody hires me, they know how I work. They know how I communicate. They know what my production style is. They know how I am as a person, what my kind of like energy level is. They know mm -hmm. my strengths. They know my weaknesses because I've got 200 videos that are all 30 minutes long that they can go watch and see that process. Yeah. Granted, it's different for every song, but there's not a complete stab in the dark of like, this guy's work sounds good, but is he a piece of shit? You know, like, right. I or mean, granted, I, I guess I probably could <laughs> still be one, but That's true. I was talking with, with somebody the other day, when you have any kind of public image, whether that's a thousand followers or a hundred thousand followers or a million followers, if you 
become somebody that everybody at least kind of knows of. Like we have people in our Facebook group where every time they post, they're just respected. Whether they're doing insane work or not, they always have good points. They always communicate very well. If you can be one of those people that always has solid eyes on you, it kind of gives people a little bit of leverage where if you do turn out to be a piece of shit, they can use that against you. They can be like, oh no, X, Y, Z, you know, I worked with them and I sent them an invoice for $1,500 and I literally never heard back. Yeah. When somebody's not super public in the sense of like they get involved in forums or groups or share their process or have any kind of platform whatsoever, there's not a lot of leverage for artists to trust you other than the fact of like you could send them a contract, but as we'll talk about later, freelance contracts are basically just agreements that somebody can sign if they feel like it's not like a, a I mean they are legally binding but it's not like they're getting a lawyer stamped you know authorized notarized contract that they need to sign like you do when you sign a, a fucking mortgage or something like that yeah but even if so like if you get ripped off how are you going to be able to afford to hire a lawyer they're so expensive right <laughs> yeah that's like, my that's my point is yeah, it like kind of screwed Exactly. But having some sort of public image or some sort of atmosphere around you where if you don't do good work or if you are just bad to work with, even if the song sounds great, but it was just kind of a bummer working with you, that will weigh you down super quick. But that's just one thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about like, should I make a TikTok? Should I make an Instagram reel? Should I get involved in Facebook groups or Discord servers? It's like, if, especially if you want to work remotely, you've got to find some way to let people into your yeah. workflow. You people know, people like seeing examples. It's like it's anything though. It looks like that. Like yeah. you wouldn't. But we're looking at buying a new couch. Like, but well, I'm not going to buy a couch online that I've never sat on. Right. That's crazy. I'm not going to spend thousands of dollars on something I've never sat on. Just like you wouldn't hire a producer that you only have three examples on their website or you've never heard of them before. Or like you've never seen any of their work. It's like you're not going to spend thousands of dollars on that if no one knows any about thing about your workflow or how you work or anything like that. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to get paid projects, try to do your best to at least become it doesn't even have to be a super popular public figure, but try to at least be pretty public with your workflow and and your work itself because I think that helps people trust a little bit, especially when when money gets involved. Yeah. And creative work gets gets involved. I see a lot of people worried that, you know, their songs are going to get stolen by a producer they collaborate with. I think in general just communicate well, be a good, trustworthy person. And then when it actually comes to the song or the work at hand, do the best you can do every time. Doing that, you'll start to get that word of mouth naturally occur. You'll start to have good portfolio pieces that will turn into people having their eyes on you, et cetera. I don't think it's really rocket science. I think it's just a lot of work that a lot of people kind of want to skip right over Mm -hmm. because I think you can just have a website and then people are automatically going to hire you. Yeah, it's a lot of like social communication it's like that's a lot and it's it's a lot for people and it's hard to do online for it is a lot of people too so i get it i would say that's as important if not more important to being a free especially a freelance independent producer because i don't have a publisher or a manager doing all that work for me it's my job to go out and meet all these people Mm -hmm. and unfortunately i know a lot of people who do i mean like absolutely insane work i'm talking like top tier even levels above me can't stay booked though because they just are not super inviting publicly you know they're not engaging in conversations or maybe like their communication skills aren't the best which is hard right and that's not easy if that is if that is your case i would say that might be the perfect situation to do something like get a manager where you can have somebody kind of guide you through consultation calls and setting rates and booking people it's like if you know that you can crush the work but you're not very good socially and that's totally fine it might be worth it to get some kind of manager or project manager or mm-hmm. somebody to 
help with all of that. Because if you're not going to have a label and if you're not going to have a publisher, it is at the end of the day, your job to get people in the door. And to do that, you kind of have to be inviting and you have to have a little bit of charisma. Mm -hmm. Now that we've talked a little bit about how to get those eyes on you and how to start getting a paid project or two, I think we should dive a little bit into what is equally as important to getting a paid project. And that is like actually locking it down because I see so many people have the potential to have paid projects, but there's just not a really good kind of streamlined approach to landing it once those eyes are necessarily on them. Mm -hmm. So I'll go a little bit over what kind of like my most popular workflow has been. It's not necessarily what I do now because I'm doing a lot less independent work like that. I'm doing a lot more kind of long-term collaborative stuff. But at the time when I was booking the most and making the most I ever made on my productions, I had everything down to like an absolute science. So like I said before... I'd get a lot of eyes and ears on me from just putting my content out, doing great work, meeting people, trying not to be an asshole online, just stuff like that. And eventually people will be like, okay, they're cool. I like everything they do. Maybe I could try to work with them. How do I do that? This is at the point where I think it's super, super important, especially as an independent producer, if you're not going the traditional route, to have some sort of website or portfolio or online catalog or something that people can kind of like look up immediately. They can literally Google your name, find your website, hear your work, read a little bit about you. And then what I found that works really, really well for me, and this is something I actually got from Daniel Grimmett. We talked about him in our intro podcast. That is having some kind of form that guides potential collaborations or artists to kind of hit you up. I've seen a lot of people just do blank contact boxes where it's just write your name, write your email, write your project, inquiry Mm -hmm. stuff. And to me, that's kind of a disaster. They have no guidance whatsoever on, you know, they need to say what they're looking for, what their timeline is, what their budget is, you know, link their social so you can check them out. And so what I've done is I have a website and my production website is massively outdated, but it's just austinhole.com. And if you go to it, you can see the example. And if you go to the contact page, there's a little form. And in that form, you write your name and then there's a drop down menu to select what you're looking for. Are you looking for full production, mixing, co-writing, remixing? At one point I was doing graphic services. And when they select that in the drop-down menu, then that pulls up another section of, okay, what budget have you allocated for this project? And this is the best way to get around people spending a lot of time talking about their project. And then you get to the always uncomfortable question of like, all right, what about money? And then they're like, oh, I thought we were just going to collaborate. Having something like this form kind of, allows people to understand your minimum. Yeah. It just understand your workflow and understand the situation before they waste a bunch of time telling you about it or you Mm -hmm. waste a bunch of time listening about it. Yeah. So I find this is just the easiest. So if somebody says I'm an artist, I'm looking for production and then they can select out of several different brackets, depending on like what they need. So I've got, I don't even remember what they are, but I want to say like 1,500 to 2,500, 2,500 to 3,500, and then 3,500 plus. Mm -hmm. And depending on what they pick and then what they tell me they need in the box below that where they can get as detailed as they want, that lets me know of, okay, do I want to get back to this person and potentially schedule this? Is this up my alley? So for example, somebody may say, my name is Jordan. I'm an artist. I am looking for production. I've allocated $2,500. And then in the box where they can tell me anything about themselves, I have a little prompt there that says, you know, tell me about who you are, what kind of music you make, where can we check you out on social media, et cetera. So they may say like, hey, I'm Jordan. I'm an artist out of Austin, Texas. 
I'm looking for full production in the style of Lainey and Lauv. Uh, I have a couple demos that I'm sitting on that I can send you if you want to hear them. You can check out all of my stuff on Spotify, XYZ. Mm -hmm. And then all of that is baked right into that form. So then anytime anybody wants to work with me, I just get one of those right to my email that that sends it, and then I can respond. And that is a really, really easy way for me to not only like cut out inquiries that I know, I know for sure I don't want to take, but organize the ones that I do want to take so I don't mm -hmm. have a lot of unread DMs. Granted, I'm still going to have artists that I really, really like that may not hit up my website. They may hit me up on Instagram and want to work. And if it's an artist that, you know, I've seeked out myself or that I would be really, really stoked on, I'm not going to circumnavigate them to that website. That's just for people who find me and they want to get a hold of me. I yeah. always send everybody to the website. That to me was like a, a huge workflow thing was just getting rid of people always in my Facebook DMs of like, hey, how much to produce? Hey, I have this track. Would you work on it? Hey, X, Y, Z. It's like, I don't want 30 fucking DMs every single day yeah. because I'll never remember the important ones and I might waste time on the unimportant. Yeah. It also like weeds out people who are going to be like, oh, I want a full production for $500. Right. It's Which, like, that's fine if that's your budget, but like some producers, that's not that's not there. So it's like that right. really will eliminate those inquiries of people who are not in your preferred bracket. Yeah, range or budget right. range. Whatever. You're setting expectations early in the process. Yeah, exactly. So that someone doesn't fill out a form and they fill it out for, you know, 500 to 1,000 and for production, you're like, well, I don't even do production for that much. And it's like, well, damn, I selected on your website. I thought you could. Right. But it's like, if you already have it to where when you hit production, it automatically starts at $1,500. People know. Right. Or if you're not doing mixing anymore or whatever, you can take off services or what or add services or whatever. It, yeah, it just takes up a lot. I w anytime that I start talking to an artist to potentially work on them, I want to cut out most of the bullshit. I'd rather really focus our time on like, creatively, what are you yeah. looking to do? How do we connect with communication? Like, what is the vibe like? I don't want to waste time talking about the boring budget <laughs> and how long are you in your career path? I want all that shit laid out before I even get on the phone with somebody. Yeah. And so I guess that brings me to step number two is say an artist fills out an inquiry, say it's interesting to me and it's a project that I could see working on. What I'll do is I'll send them back something that's like, hey, like, let's just use Jordan again as the example. Jordan from Texas. <laughs> hey, Jordan, um, you know, checked out all, all, all of the stuff that you sent over. I really, really like it. Your project details feel like they kind of fit what I'm looking to book at the moment. If you want, we can hop on a call and just discuss your project details and kind of get to know each other a little bit better. And typically what I'll do is I'll send them like a link either through like a Square Appointments or a Calendly or something like that where it has my work schedule and they can just select any time that works for them. That way, again, you don't have to have four emails back and forth of, okay, how does Tuesday the 15th work? I can't do Tuesday. Can you do Thursday? I can do Thursday at three. Oh, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Cut that shit out, right? Mm -hmm. Just send people a Calendly that they can just book that works for you. They can book it conveniently for them and then it's done. So once they've booked that, typically I'll go into that call already knowing all of the important stuff, right? Like, if you haven't already downloaded it, we have a free ebook on our website called The Fundamentals of Freelance. And there's like a whole template of what I talk about in my consultation calls. I have budget templates. I have contract templates, all of that in there. So go download that. That's completely for free. That'll explain a lot of this in even more detail. But when I'm hopping on those consultation calls, I'll kind of know exactly what I want to talk about. So of course, I'll get their name that I would need for the contract. I'll get the artist name that it's going to go under, any socials that I can kind of check them out even further. And then it gets to the fun part where we can discuss, okay, what are you looking to do with, with your songs? Where is your project at the moment? Are you working with 
you know, demos that you're kind of looking for me to flesh out? Or are you wanting to start something from scratch? These are all really important details that I like to talk about with the artist because then we can discuss the workflow and the plan of attack together. And then everybody feels more comfortable once we've discussed their actual needs. So, you know, what style they're working in, where their project is at, what they need me to do, how they want me to do what I need to do. Then you can just kind of touch over all of the important things like, okay, well, what's the timeline? Like, when do we need to have first drafts versus final drafts done by? When is your, you know, do you have a release date scheduled or do you have something in mind? Are there singles coming before or after this? And then you can talk about budget. And then typically at the end of the call, I've discussed everything from, you know, creative project details, what they're looking for, all the way to the nitty gritty kind of workflow stuff. So budgets, time frame, you know, legalities, stuff like that. And at the end of the call, I always kind of will close with, you know, it was great chatting with you today. Um, this is definitely a project that I'd be interested in working on. If, you know, this works for you or if you want to proceed forward, you feel free to just shoot me an email and let me know and we can get the process started. There's like absolutely no rush or no pressure or anything like that. But, you know, thank you for your time. I don't pressure them on the phone to get a response immediately. I know some people do that and it works really well for them. It feels very salesman to me yeah. personally, and it's just not how I like working. I'd rather give people time, but I would say nine times out of 10, they're like, oh no, we're definitely doing this. Like just send me the contract and invoice. Yeah. And I think the reason that, you know, not to sound too salesman but the closing rate on these calls is so good is because they go into that call knowing the really annoying stuff like budget, time frame, you know, what we're looking to do in that project. And by the time I've emailed them back, we already have kind of agreed on all of that stuff, mm -hmm. right? That's like an unspoken agreement of they're cool with paying that. I'm cool with receiving that. That's why I'm reaching back out. And so, you know, sometimes the vibe is not quite right on the phone. Sometimes they may feel a little awkward or I may feel a little awkward or I talk to them and the project's not necessarily in the lane that I thought it was going to be. And I have no problem with letting them know like, hey, it was great talking to you, but you know, after chatting a little while, I don't know if I'm the perfect fit for this. Yeah. And that's totally fine because then I don't waste any more time. But nine times out of 10, I would say before I even hang up that call, it's definitely send the contract and invoice. We should get started immediately. Yeah. Okay. Let's say that they do say that, right? Let's say that we're, we're definitely booking the project. The next step for me, and again, you can find all of the templates for this in that free ebook on our website. Just go to the freebies tab is I will send a contract, which is really just like a one page thing with my name, their name, services that are going to be rendered, uh, a rough timeline. And then, you know, typically on work for higher projects, I don't take any publishing or points on the back end or anything like that. We'll talk about all that in literally just a couple of minutes when we talk about budget, but I'll have the project rate and then I'll have the payment schedule. And I always, always, always do at least half up front. Sometimes I do full up front if it's going to be a really, really fast project. Like if I know that we're going to open and close that project within one week. I'm just going to get the full amount up front. But I always do at least have to hold the spot, get their stems, kind of be worth my time to get everything scheduled. And then typically we'll discuss on, okay, well, do you want the last half completely at the end? Do you want, you know, a quarter of the payment when I send the instrumental before you send back vocals? Do you want a quarter at the very, very end? But once I've sent that contract and invoice, they just have to send both of those back paid and signed. And then the project goes on my schedule for the date that we've discussed. Before we discuss prices and kind of close this episode out, I do just want to talk a little bit about what the actual workflow is like when I'm working remotely, because a lot of people have questions on that of like, how do you even produce for an artist in Australia or whatever? Typically, you know, where we left off is once we get that contract and invoice signed, I get them on the schedule. 
And then I like to get all of the information and details I need. So if we're working off of a demo that they have, I'll get their demo and their stems for that. And uh, typically what I'll do is whether we're working off of a demo or just a vision board idea or a one-liner, whatever we have as a starting point, I like to kind of fill the artist in on my vision for what to do with it before I even hop into my DAW and start spending time on it. So like, let's say an artist just gives me a piano demo, but they've told me that they want it to sound like X, Y, Z. What I'll do is I'll listen to that quite a few times and then I'll send them back a little like PDF or, or Word document that's just like, hey, here's what I was thinking. I was thinking that we could, you know, set the tempo right around here. We could swap this chord to this. For production style, I'm feeling drums like insert XYZ reference. For a synth, I think we could really focus on going kind of vintage with the synth. And then for guitar, I'm thinking like twangy XYZ. And this is just to kind of paint the picture of what my vision is for the song before I even start on it to the artist. Because early in my freelance career, I did spend a lot of time where I would think that we might be on the same page, but then I might go one direction and they were expecting another direction. And that's where you start running into the problem of like early on in the process, you feel like you're not understanding each other. Yeah. And that can get really disheartening very, very quickly. So I do think it is important to kind of set creative expectations and just let them know what's going on. Because if you're the producer or even the mix engineer or mastering engineer, you should already have at least a working version of that in your head. So you should be able to communicate that to the artist so they can sleep a little bit better before they get those first drafts. So once I've done that and they like the creative vision, then what we'll do is I'll create a version of the song or a mix of the song that's kind of a first pass. So let's say I'm producing something, right? I will get an an intro, a verse, a pre-chorus, and a chorus done. And typically I'll work all the way up through the chorus so we can at least feel how the song feels dynamically. We can hear individual sections of, did they like the verse? Did they like the chorus? And that kind of gives me and the artist a good jumping off point. And then that's where we'll start doing the first round of revisions. So let's say they've got a demo all the way up through the chorus. And for instance, they're like, I really love it, but I feel like the drums could use this in the verse. I feel like the chorus could use this. But other than that, let's keep going. I'll make those changes and then I'll talk to them about structure. So, you know, what are we doing? How is the song structured? Are we going verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus? I'll kind of set that song structure with them from that point. If they don't have like a demo that we're working off of, of course. And then once we have that initial idea and that song structure kind of set in stone, then I'll do a full pass of the instrumental where I can send that back to them and they can give me all of their pointers and feedbacks and anything that they want done before they start working on the vocals of the song or tracking the vocals for the song. So then I'll revise all of that. Typically that doesn't take much, maybe one revision, um, just so they can have it at a place where they feel comfortable with it in the studio. And then 99% of the time I'll send that production to the artist. The artist will record their vocals on it by themselves or in a studio in their area. So, you know, if I'm working with somebody in London, they can track it up over there if they want. And then they'll just send me back their stems or their multi-track files. And then at that point, I've got a full draft of the production. I've got their vocals that are going to be final vocals. I'll edit all the vocals. I will revise any of the production that they had revisions on. And then that's when I'll start kind of doing my final working mix. And then by the time I send them their first version of that, that's pretty much a finished song. At that point, I'm like, what do you want to change about the mix? What do we need to change about the production? And then typically we'll do one or two more revisions and it's completely done. So it's just splitting it up into stages where you're not overwhelming the artist with being like, here's my idea. Here's a three and a half minute song that I've spent two weeks on. What yeah. do you think about it? And they're like, holy shit, I don't even know where to start giving my feedback or thoughts on this because I've, I feel bad that you've already spent so much time. Yeah. 
So try to just be upfront about like, this is where the project's going. Here's what I have on the project. What do you think? Here's what I've done on the project since last week. What do you think? Here's the first version with your vocals. What do you think? And then here's a final. What do you think? And splitting that up does take a little bit more time, but unless there's a pressing time issue, I feel like that makes the collaboration much more comfortable. And yeah, it might look like you're doing a lot of revisions on paper, but you're not doing these big, you know, three or four pages of notes once you get to a final mix. Yeah, I think that'll save you time in the long run. It does. Like I'd rather do a bunch of small ones at, you know, different times and a bunch at once. It does. And that also allows you to work on a lot of different projects at one time. True, because yeah. I may work on six projects in one day, but I might only be doing an hour's worth of work on each one because I'm just giving them enough so they can understand Here's what we're doing. We're doing this in steps. I don't want to overwhelm an artist when I send them something back and they're like, whoa, I haven't heard 99% of this. Yeah. And so, you know, I try not to work more than two or three hours on anything at in one sitting because then I feel like I'm just doing too much. I'm going to surprise them. I might be overcooking stuff. So maybe keep that in mind too of like working in increments like this allows them to feel more comfortable giving revisions and having creative input. And it allows you to balance a lot more projects. So as long as you can keep your books clear and you can keep everything organized, you should be able to, to balance five to 10 productions going on at any given time, as long as you're good with getting back to people with revisions and, and with updates on where their work is at. That's the process of how I work remotely. Every, every project's a little bit different, but that's kind of like my run and gun template. Mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of the like, oh, we'll hop on a Skype session and produce it together or like we'll do X, Y, and Z. I find that super, honestly, irritating. Like I feel like I'm just doing the work and I have somebody sitting over my shoulder. Yeah. Most of the time, it's not even a, a lot of collaborative input. It just feels really awkward. My workflow is a little bit slower because you've got tech issues. If we're going to do that, I'd rather the artist just fly out to Orlando and work with me in person. Like mm -hmm. I understand flights are kind of expensive and stuff like that, but if you need to be that involved in the process, then you should be in the room. I don't think you need to be doing it remotely. Yeah, or hire a different producer. Yeah, or <laughs> hire somebody you. else. I just don't like working like that. I've tried it, and to me, it yeah. just, I didn't like where the song came out. I didn't like the collaborative process getting there. It seems ir very irritating. I, yeah, I felt like even the artists couldn't give me their thoughts and feedback as well as they could have if I just sent them a version. They had a day or two to sit on it and then send me their feedback. Yeah, that's the thing too, is that the sound quality is not as good on something like Zoom. So it's like if you have a few days to digest just something that your producer sent you, I feel like that's better. Literally. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one thing to just keep in mind of like, I don't think you have to be doing the audio movers. We're going to sit on a session and do this maybe for like a, a cute little writing session or something like that. But if I'm working on a production and I'm like in it, in it, and I'm just trying to get shit done, I don't want somebody there not really understanding what I'm doing while I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's just my preferences. The last thing that I want to talk about before we close this out is setting prices. We get this question an insane amount. And as Miranda has pointed out earlier, prices range vastly, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's the lowest you've, I, I don't know. What's the lowest you've seen somebody charge for a full production? 50 bucks, 20 bucks? $50, probably a lot of like huge songs end up being like a guy that sold the beat for 50 bucks. And then we're seeing people sign beats to huge, huge artists that they're getting advances of $100,000. Yeah. And then they're taking back-end publishing and points and stuff like that, and they're making a couple million dollars for a song. Yeah, it's very crazy, the range. I don't feel like there's a range that big with anything else, really. Right. Like any other career path. So I do want to talk about how to set your prices, but before we do that, I feel like it's only fair to give at least some benchmarks of like where you can expect competitor prices to be so you know to price yourself appropriately where you're not super undercutting yourself but you also don't look like an asshole like way overcharging i would say for let's say you're a mixing engineer right and you're just getting started getting paid for your work 
I would say for like an entry-level mixing engineer, somebody that has, I mean, granted, even if you're getting paid for your work at the most entry level, you should still have examples on your website of things that you've mixed, like I said before, for collaborations, free projects, portfolio pieces, whatever. Mm -hmm. You should still have work under your belt. But if you're to the point where you can send a contract and an invoice and make a little bit of money, I would say intro mixers are right around 200, 250 bucks, all the way up to $500. I think that that's a reasonable point to hire somebody who's kind of entry-level freelance. And I think that's a reasonable thing to charge. One level up from that is like mid-level freelancers. And that's kind of like $500 to $700. These are people that do good work consistently, but they're not necessarily getting, you know, cuts or anything like that. Uh, For like a top tier freelancer, like somebody who might not be getting massive cuts every now and then, but it's doing really, really amazing work. Like somebody that you don't understand why they're not mixing for big people. Yeah. Would be like 700 to 1500 for a mix. And then for somebody that I think is getting some solid cuts here and there, like maybe they're getting a couple billboards here and there, but they're not necessarily doing Olivia Rodrigo or Lil Nas X or something like that consistently. That's going to range you like 1500 to 3000, which is, I know a huge range, but that's how it gets once you get to these tiers. And then for your major, major pros, your Serbans, your Mannies, your Chris Lord Algies, I mean, you're looking at anywhere from at the absolute lowest $3,000 up to well over $10,000 per song for a mix. So stupid. Which is crazy because a lot of those- pay that much for a mix. <laughs> a lot of those guys too, like they're mixing people that are so well produced that like, I know for a fact, Serban can run through a mix in 45 minutes oh, and make eight grand, 10 grand. I mean, grand. like good for you, but It's just to have crazy. their name on there. And because when you're an artist at that level, that's going to have music so widely distributed, you want to have the best years on it to make sure that there are no slip ups. Yeah. If you have like a label paying for it, but like right. out of your own pocket, like, no, I mean, I don't think those guys even take like people who, no. you know, people that aren't signed and who everyone knows who they are and play right. on the radio, but- and if they do take them, it's their assistants doing 99% oh, yeah. of the work and they come in and they're like, that sounds good. You can sign off. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's where I would put mixing. So even if you're an artist listening to this, if you want a good quality mix, I'd say 500 to $1,000 mm-hmm. for like a really good, you know, you're going to get good quality. That 200 to $500 range is somebody who is probably doing good enough to charge, but every mix they may do may not be, you know, quite where it needs to be. It's, it's, there's going to be some inconsistencies. Well, and mixing when I was is in so that, personal too. Right. So it's like, it depends on what you like. Like maybe you like somebody who only charges $250. Maybe you like someone that charges $1,500. Right. Yeah. Like the mic video that we did, literally the one that comes out tomorrow when we're recording this. But last week when you're listening to this, we had a two odd $300 mic. And it's very similar as like sometimes in that price cut, it might work perfect for somebody, but with that, that price range, it might not be amazing every time, mm-hmm. you know? And that's one of the things that you get with, with lower budgets for anything is just inconsistency. But hopefully that helps you kind of set your, your mixing rates for production. It ranges even more. Yeah, that makes more sense. Right. So for production, I would say intro level, like absolute intro level, somebody needing a production would be, to $500. If you're charging less than $200, I think you're wasting your time. If I'm honest, like I think you are giving up good ideas and I think that you're spending a lot of time and you're not even making minimum wage. Yeah. And getting taken advantage of a little bit. Right. And all the way up to 500 bucks. I think if somebody can get a fully produced song for $500, in my opinion, that's still a steal. And then mid-level. So people who do great work, but literally don't have like any cuts, but you're like, oh, this this feels good. Like it still feels commercially ready, releasable. I'd say that's anywhere from 500 to 1500. And then for like your mid-level kind of like really, really solid freelancers that are not under a publisher and are not necessarily working 
with huge people but do really good work every time, I'd say 1500 to 3K. And then for your guys who are getting some cuts here and there, like maybe they're getting a cool record every now and then, maybe they have a couple charts under their belt, but they're not, you know, consistently working with like the absolute smash hits. I would say that's going to be probably like 3K to 5K. And then for your people that are consistently working on major releases, you know, you're not listening to this, but that's going to range anywhere from 10,000 to, like I said before, 100,000, 200,000, like it doesn't matter. The limit does not exist. Yeah, they're getting advances <laughs> and back end at that point. Yeah. So now that we've given some actual like ranges, I think it's really important to talk about the ways that you get paid. And so typically when I work for people, especially that are coming in through my website, it's all called work for hire. And that essentially means that they employ me to do a job. Once that job is over, I get paid and it's clean and cut. This is a plus and minus. The plus is that I'm guaranteed money, right? Like if I charge somebody $3,000, I know for sure that I'm making $3,000. There's no, oh, what if it doesn't release? Oh, what if it flops? That's not my problem at the end of the day. I did my job. The bad side is a lot of the time with work for hire, you're taking that upfront money, but you're also relinquishing the the rights and the control. So I might say, yeah, I charge $3,000, but I don't take any back end. And backing can be divided into publishing and points on the master. So publishing is taken from like a songwriter split that's a set percentage. And then points on the master is basically just a percentage of master sales. So if I have two points on the master, that's 2% of revenue that the song makes or whatever. Typically, when you do work for hire, you forfeit both of those. Not all the time. You can negotiate. But I try to because if I'm doing work for hire, it's typically for independent artists. I'd rather them keep whatever profit it makes. And if the song does really well, they can return and we can kind of go from there. Yeah. It's really annoying to register every song that I do for back end. And so yeah. if I'm doing 200 records a year, I don't want to have to put 200 records into BMI and, you know, check a sound exchange for 200 records, check my TuneCore publishing for that. That's a lot of effort for me. I'd rather just charge up front and not have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And that's a plus for artists looking to hire people. With that said, if you are getting to people that you think down the long run, they might be able to make you a bit more money on like sales and things like that. That's where you get into publishing and and points and back end and stuff like that. And typically if I'm doing that, I don't charge up front or I may charge like a small advance. Let's say for instance, Drake comes to me and he says, hey, I want to have you do this song and I'm offering you even split on publishing and 6% on the master, but I don't get any upfront money. That's okay. Uh, 6% on the Drake record, I'll probably make way past my going rate. Yeah. <laughs> However, you can also negotiate and I could say, yeah, I can definitely do that. However, I'm going to need some kind of advance because I don't know when that song's coming out. Like I still have to support myself. I have a family, whatever. So you could say, okay, well, I want an advance of $50,000. And then that same master point, that same publishing split and everything. And what happens is then that artist has to recoup that fee that they've paid you in the advance. And then you start making your split. So once my revenue payout got over $50,000, then I'd start making something because I got the literal advance of that. So that's the main ways to get paid as a producer. Typically mixers are all work for hire. I'm all for a mixer taking a point or two on the master if they can get it. When you're producing, especially at an independent level, work for hire is going to be the easiest legally. It's going to make sure that you don't have a million different documents and registrations and things like that. And then if you build those long-term relationships with people that do start to pop off, that's where you can start doing more collaborative things for back-end publishing splits, points, and things like that. But typically, when I'm, I'm just taking a project for my website, it's work for hire because I don't want to deal with any of that shit. So those are just things to keep in mind. And then... We've done a little pricing 
kind of cheat sheet before. I think a lot of people, when they think about price, they think about just time that they spend on something. So, oh, I don't feel like I should charge $3,000 because I can get that production done in six hours. And it's like, okay, but time is not the only thing that goes into that. And time in the studio is not the only time that goes into that. So how much time do you spend figuring out the direction of the song, communicating with the artist, sending contracts and invoices back and forth? How many fees do you lose for PayPal and taxes and things like that? Um, how long does it take you to send revisions and bounce files? How many revisions are you doing? Things like that also tie into time a lot. Like I would say if I'm, if I book a project, half my time is not spent in the session for that. Yeah. We also got to like listen to like references that they say, like shit like that. It's like all that little stuff takes time. I have to get paid. Yeah. Well, and also they're paying for creativity. You're not just paying for someone's time. That's my next point is especially when you're producing. Less so if you're mixing, but if you're producing, you need to be getting paid for your ideas, right? Like if I produce a song, I am spending ideas that I'll never be able to use again. Yeah, exactly. You can't just like recycle the same idea that that you did for somebody else. So even if I do a $3,000 production in six hours between the actual session, communicating back and forth, sending everything, I probably put closer to 15 hours, 20 hours of work into that. And then I also have to make sure, especially if I'm doing work for hire, that there is a price tag on that creative idea because- Typically, that's where points in publishing start to pay off. It's like, oh, my creative idea was so fucking good mm-hmm. that 8 million people stream this and I should get paid based on how good that was. That doesn't happen when you do work for hire all upfront cash. Mm-hmm. You just need to be able to kind of understand your worth and set your price. And so keep that in mind when you're setting your rate is it's not just how much time does this take? What's the minimum I need to make X, Y, Z a year? Is like, A, what's your time worth? B, what is the workflow like outside of the studio? And then C, once again, how important and how expensive is your creativity and your professional input. And this ranges greatly, like I said before, from $200 to a song all the way to 200000 Like mm-hmm. it really, there's no limit. And that's how I would go about setting prices. And obviously you just need to know your market and understand what people will pay. You know, there's undercutting where you look like an idiot and then there's overcharging where you look like an asshole. You kind of just have to naturally find that line in the middle of, I feel comfortable charging this. Artists still feel really comfortable paying this for the product and and quality of song they're getting back. And that's how you need to set your rates. Not necessarily like necessities or just you see somebody else charge a rate and you decide to mirror it. So that's pretty much everything I think we can go over for how to be a freelancer, especially how to get paid work and how to navigate that. Is there anything else you think we should go over? I know I did ask Instagram for some questions, but we've talked about so much. I'm sure that I answered yeah, most of them. Yeah, I'm sure they're covered, but yeah. we can double check. Now you guys are all equipped to be freelancers. <laughs> Go make that. that paper. Also, don't forget taxes. <laughs> yes. You definitely need to make some kind of account. We have something under an app called Catch, and it takes 25% out of everything we ever make for taxes at the end of the year. That's what we need for Florida. Make sure yeah. you understand tax laws because my first couple of years of being freelance, I got hit with tax bills that had commas in it and yeah. it was stressing me out. Yeah, he was a big dummy and didn't listen to me for a long time. But yes, guys, please put aside money for your taxes. Don't screw yourself when tax season comes around and you have to pay that because you don't know. You never know how much it is. You think you know how much it is. But you're always off. You might be stoked that you made $60,000 and you start living like you're making $60,000 and then you get a tax bill for $17,000 at the end of the year and you don't know what to do. Yeah, don't like put yourself in a hole because you don't save money. You don't think about it. Definitely put aside your, your money for your taxes. Don't screw yourself. 
be smart. I'm glad I remembered that because that almost fucked me multiple yeah, that, times. Yeah, that's probably the best advice out of yeah. everything and it's at the very end. Yeah, get some kind of separate bank account or some kind of automated service. We use Catch. It's free. It just takes 25% of whatever goes into our bank, puts that in an account, and then every April, yeah. I take out that large lump sum of money, pay my taxes, and don't worry about it. Yeah, whatever works for you guys. Yep. Do that. All right, so questions before we dip. How much free work is enough free work at the start of your career? Like I said before, I think this is going to depend, right? Like I think you need to do the quote unquote free work until you have a portfolio where people feel comfortable paying you, right? Yeah, like or something that you're proud of. Like, yeah. Prove your worth. That's yeah. really all free work comes down to is like do work where you feel like that allows you to prove your potential. I would say though, at least like maybe five examples. I feel like you need at least five. I think at least That's five. That's like bare minimum. Yeah. Oh yeah. I would say you need at least five examples and you need to understand how to communicate with artists. That's another thing during free work is like Treat it like it's a paid project. Yeah, because you can do free work, though, and not like how it came out. So that's why I'm saying like an exam, like the amount that you probably need to have. I mean, I would think of it, too, like if you're an artist and you were hiring a producer, how many examples would you want them to have in order to feel comfortable paying them and hiring them? Exactly. Just go off of that, really. That really ties into the next question is how do you know you're ready for paid projects? I can never tell if I'm good enough yet. People will tell you you're good enough. They'll offer mm -hmm. to pay you. Like yeah. that's literally, people will start hitting you up and being like, hey, can you do this? Hey, can you do this? If people are reaching out to you, that is a sign that you are ready to start charging. Yep. If you're reaching out to people and you're like, hey, I really like what you do. Can we work on this together? You're not ready to charge. If people are, are comfortable being like, oh, I loved what you did for XYZ. Can you do something similar for me? Yes, I can. Here's my website. Fill out the form. Mm -hmm. I'll get back to you and we can set something up. That's how you know you're ready. I see so many people trying to charge way too early where there is no demand. They have not really proven themselves as a producer or as a communicator or anything like that. And they get so discouraged. Do not get into production if you think that this is just a way to start charging people money for your work. Yeah, don't do it as like a doing it as a side hustle, I feel like is a bad way to start. But I feel like that's what a lot of people do. They're like, oh, I just want some extra cash. I'm just going to do it as a side hustle because they think it's just something you can start. But it's really not. And there's it's a really saturated market. Yes. So it's like you got to have something and you can't just be like, I'm just going to start doing this thing. Every single producer I or I know that is making OK money and can support themselves full time. I can promise you none of them set out to kind of start a production business. Yeah. They started producing to sustain themselves creatively as an artist or to make demos for their band that they were in. It was never like a, oh, I'm going to do this and kind of see how I can parlay this into a career. Yeah. It was really that. just like, I'm going to do this because I love it. Oh shit. I got good at this. Oh shit. People are offering to pay me because I got good at this. Yeah. Oh wow. I'm getting a lot of offers to be paid. Maybe I should quit my job where I make less money. Mm -hmm. That's literally the formula for anybody who's freelance. Somebody else said, how do you get clients or artists overseas? How do you approach them? I don't approach them. Like I said, people kind of find me and reach out on the website. If there are artists that I want to work with that are like bigger, I honestly have had my best luck DMing them on Instagram. Like most of the cool artists that I know now, um, you know, Joan, Always Never, Nightly, any of those guys I met through YouTube and, and Instagram. Yeah. So any of those guys, stuff like that, that's casual communication might be a good way to connect. But other than that, people find me and they just come in through my website. And as far as like language barriers, Unfortunately, if there is a language barrier and there's not some kind of mediator or or somebody to kind of act as a, as a middle party, it's that project is just probably not going to work. Communication is so important in creativity. Yes. And unfortunately, with language barriers, if I can't understand what they want and what they need and they can't understand what I'm trying to give them, it, 
Everyone's just wasting their time. Yeah, it's not going to go smoothly. So we just we need to understand each other to the sense of like we can get a project done. That's really the only thing. You've worked with a lot of people overseas that English is not their first language and it's gone perfectly well. I've done projects in I think like 75 countries. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It just depends on the person. And then lastly, what values can you offer to attract others to like your end of the deal? So I would assume like what sets you apart from the competition? Like you, are they saying like, what can you do? I think what can you do to set Mm -hmm. you apart from the competition? Because as you pointed out, it's saturated as hell. It is saturated. I don't know. You got to have, again, it's so personal. At the end of the day, nine times out of 10, it's probably that they like your sound and they like your workflow and they want what you've done for other people to happen with them. Yeah, music is That is is what sets you apart. Like there's a huge difference for freelance producers that are being sought out because they're being sought out versus they offer a service that is being sought out. And I think that's a big point in a freelance career is are people seeking you specifically out because it is you specifically or are they finding you because they need production and they see that you offer production and your examples are good enough for them. Right. That to me is how you know that you've made it as a freelance producer, how you're able to start increasing your your price brackets is people are now at this point intentionally seeking me out. They intentionally want my name and my work on the track. And there's a price tag that that comes along with that because I have to be a lot more selective, right? Yeah, I have to take projects that I'm only really passionate about, yada, yada, yada. So I think what can set you apart is just showing your worth and showing your value behind, like we said earlier, showing your workflow, showing how you communicate with people, allowing others to see a little bit of your personality. And then most importantly, allowing others to really understand the work that you're doing, right? So they feel comfortable trusting you with their song, trusting you with their money, trusting getting in business with you, especially for back end. And so that's the main things. Those are the only ones that I saw that were kind of different than what we talked about. Everything else we've literally said verbatim. So I think that is going to do it for this episode. We talked about a ton. Uh, I had a good time. I know this was a quiet one for you, babe. Yeah, sorry, guys. I know you probably missed me so much. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you want to make up for it? You want to give people a uh, recommendation to close out the podcast? Oh, my God. What the heck? My recommendation? Oh, you know what my recommendation is going to be? I actually know. It's going to be the new Meg Thee Stallion song called Budget featuring Lotto. So good. I'm that obsessed one's fire. With, I'm obsessed with her, so I'm a little biased. But it actually is it's such a good song, you guys. Please go listen to it. Lyrics, incredible. Beat, incredible. She's incredible. Lotto's feature is great. Like, Please go listen to that. Her album in general is good, but that's my favorite song off the album right now. I've listened to it. like I listened to it like three times in a row yesterday. So Busted. <laughs> so out of 10 would recommend that. No, that one's fire. That was my favorite off the new album as well. That's a great wreck. Yeah. I'm gonna give them a wreck. I kind of have one. Go. If you watch a lot of YouTube, there's a channel that we have been obsessed <gasps> oh with. Oh my God. Why did I not think of this? It's literally my favorite YouTube channel ever to ever exist. I don't care. Stop watching our videos and go watch this. I, don't, I really don't give a shit. It's called Hive Mind. Guys, it's these two so guys, they're the funniest people I've ever seen. Yeah, Graydon and Riley of Hive Mind. If you guys are not subscribed to their channel, you really, if you love music, which obviously if you're at the end of this podcast, you do, you need to go watch their channel. They're so funny. Right. They do a lot of like small underground artists that I've never even heard of. Yeah. And then it's a lot of like commentary, tier lists, yes. rankings, um, a lot of like, like games. trivia games. Yeah. But honestly, we have gotten to the point where we've probably watched a hundred of their videos. Oh, easy. Like over the past couple like, weeks. Binge them like yeah. and in probably an unhealthy amount. <laughs> like, it's literally the funniest YouTube channel I've ever seen. Yeah. Honestly. If you, yeah. If you love music and you need like light, uplifting content that's just funny. That's the channel's the Hive Mind. They just announced the second channel to Hive Mind Unlimited. Less yes. music focused, but 
same kind of formats. Definitely go check them out. If for some reason uh, Riley or Graydon hear this, I would shit my pants. Let me know <laughs> if y'all want to do some kind of collab content. <gasps> Come on the podcast. We're massive fans channel. of you guys, uh, and we appreciate honestly what you do too for like underground music specifically like midwest hip-hop yeah oh yeah they're from the midwest midwest boys so that's my recommendation i feel like i had to throw it yeah i why did i completely forgot about that great wreck but all right so after this podcast go listen to uh budget by meg the stallion and lotto and go watch hive mind on youtube other than that if you've enjoyed this podcast feel free to like the podcast i think you can rate the podcast actually on spotify or whatever you can yeah rate it like it Oh, Follow right it, whatever it, whatever know, it is on your podcast things. service. Yeah. Show us some love, however possible. And then if you want to check out all of our YouTube tutorials and stuff like that, you can go to youtube.com slash make pop music. And if you want to check out all of the other fire content that we have, like that free freelancing ebook or any of the other free or paid content, sample packs, preset packs, courses, MIDI packs, all that good kind of stuff. You can head over to makepopmusic.com and check all of that out. That's how you can support us on the podcast. The more support and the more love that we get for this, the more time we can dedicate we're hoping to maybe eventually go weekly with a podcast, but we're trying to figure out how to fit that into our schedule. So yeah, the more support we can get on it, the easier it is for us to kind of schedule this time out opposed to other things. So hopefully you've liked this episode. If you have any questions about anything we've chatted about today, feel free to DM us on Instagram and I'll get back to you as soon as I possibly can. But that's going to close out this episode of The Soundtable. Any closing words? No, you want to say any closing words, Sophie? <laughs> All right, that's Sophie saying bye. That's going to do it, everybody. Much Much love. love. Peace. Peace.